Welcome to the Military History Verbalized podcast and today I speak with Noah from the Stories of the Second World War podcast about Erwin Rommel. Now I did already a video on Rommel on why he's so complicated and recently I was on a conference where several German military historians discussed about Rommel and there was quite some disagreement and a lot of that influences this podcast. So it's basically an extended version of why Aaron Rommel is so complicated with some new information. So enjoy and be sure to check out Noah's podcast. It's linked in the description. I'm very excited to be covering a man who perhaps needs another episode dedicated to him. And today we'll be talking about once again, Field Marshal Erwin Rommel. My guest today is Bernhard of the acclaimed YouTube channel Military History Visualized and the Military History Visualized podcast. I highly recommend you all go check out both his YouTube channel and podcast for incredible videos, some of the best I've seen covering military vehicles, weapons, leaders, tactics on all aspects of military history and particularly World War II. Bernhard, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. It's an absolute pleasure. I've been a fan of your YouTube channel for many years. So uh, to have the opportunity to discuss Rommel with you today is an absolute delight. But I guess my first question is, a lot of people listening to this podcast, most I would hope, have heard my last episode, which was a conversation with Daniel Allen Butler about Erwin Rommel. He, of course, wrote a book on Rommel. Uh, but my first question has to do with Rommel's dealings during the First World War, the Great War. We know that's basically where Rommel got his first taste of combat, which um, one might say defined him as a military leader, or at least uh, first showed signs of the the brilliant leader that he would become. But when talking about Rommel during the First World War, are there any things that you think it is important to note and important for us to realize? Yes, as you already pointed out, it's very important to understand what Rommel did in the First World War to understand him in the Second World War. And recently I, I was at a conference as a guest and there were leading German military historians and they pointed out this uh, specifically that you need to look at Rommel, what he did in the First World War, to understand what happened again in the Second World. And Rommel made, um, he, he got the Pulemerit, the highest Prussian military um, decoration you can get. And there were a very limited number of people who got it. But what's very important here is there was actually quite some trouble that he got it. And what was noted especially is he ignored the chain of command. He intervened and then it was awarded. But he and this ignoring of the chain of command happened again in the Second World War. So as some military historians point out there, you see this again and again. And they also noted that this might have influenced that he didn't join the Alpenkorps, the uh, mountain troops in the Second World War again, and that he went for the Panzer Truppe because, well, it's a very small group and they knew basically about his reputation. And one very interesting aspect was also mentioned that Rommel several times walked into the, the area of a different unit. He was a unit commander. And in this particular battle where they discussed about it, and he went into the unit area of the, another unit. And he was a reserve officer and he noted, this is something bad you don't do, basically. So I'm, I was only conscript. I was never, never in a leadership position. And this again was in the discussion stretched by one of the colonels who is also a military historian, he said, this is absolutely 
without discussion, you don't do this. This is very bad practice. And this is very important to see when a military historian also has a military background, he sees this very differently because there's, I guess there's the, the problems of friendly fire and other aspects. So Rommel quite often seemed to have broken the rules. And this also explains to a certain degree why certain officers had a rather negative view about him. And also, Rommel never received general staff education. This was one reason why some officers are very negative about him, and at the same time, why Adolf Hitler was quite fond of him. Yes, that's very important to realize, I think, as well. And that's certainly something um, Hitler admired about him as well. That's very interesting. You know, I'm curious, perhaps you could shed a little bit more light on this than I. You know, Rommel is most well known for his campaigns in North Africa and fighting against the British and the French, you know, as leader of the Africa Corps. Um, based on his combat experience during World War One, a good chunk of that was spent in, you know, mountain combat and in that whole scene as well. But Desert warfare, was that something that was new to the the German army? I mean, you know, new to the German army in general, because Germany did not have massive colonial empires like that of the the British and the French. But uh, it's it's surprising that Rommel was able to do so well in the desert, which is very different than fighting in, you know, the mountains or on the, the Western Front. I mean, as Daniel um, Butler pointed out, that Rommel realized in the First World War that the movement is a very important aspect or maneuver. And basically, one notion is that combat is, has two elements, firepower and maneuver, and that he quite often maneuvered. So the basic principles for, for desert warfare are that there's a lot of maneuver going on and there were always open flanks, basically. And the other aspect with desert warfare in North Africa it's mostly, it's not, it's less about an open desert. It's basically fighting for a certain uh, area in the coastal area. It's actually rather small and it's basically for fighting for certain bases, for ports, for airfields and, and oasis logistical points. So there's actually a very minor stretch of the land area there. What's also important, Rommel actually, as mentioned also in the previous um, podcast, he didn't got the mission to attack or something, he was basically in charge of a blocking detachment, for a Panzersperrverband. And so he went out of his mission, actually. And you could say he took the initiative, if you see it positively, or you could say if you take it negatively, he defied the basic mission he had. And there's also another aspect where Rommel often took charge of his own local area and looked mainly at this, but ignored the major strategic aspect, which some would also attribute that he didn't have a channel staff education, and this was quite problematic. So that well that's an interesting fact that you pointed out. And you know, it's correct uh when talking about desert warfare that, you know, we tend to picture these swaths of open, you know, desert fields, but the coastal areas were the positions most vital to the um morale and um strategic location of the troop maneuvers. Now, I'm curious, I'm just, I guess I'll just get right into this because to me, it's fascinating. One of the things that has been a case that has been made against Rommel, not saying it's not true, is the July 20th bomb plot, Operation Valkyrie, the assassination attempt to 
kill Adolf Hitler in his bunker, led by, or I shouldn't say led, but one of the co-conspirators being Stauffenberg. Was Rommel a part, in your view, of this plot? Was Rommel one of the conspirators conspiring to kill Hitler because he saw that in 1944, Germany had no hope of winning the Second World War? Before I answer this question, I need to uh, I need to take the, the long stretch here because there's one very important part which was not mentioned in the previous podcast and which is very important in this discussion. We should not forget that Rommel was before the Second World War in charge of the Führerbegleitbataillon, basically the security detachment for protecting Hitler. This is also the reason why, as mentioned in the podcast, he could appeal to Hitler to get his panzer division for the, for the invasion of France. So he was very close to Hitler and both were very fond of each other. So this is pre-war, early war. This should be basically um, Hitler saw Rommel as a Tatenmensch, uh, a guy in charge, a guy doing stuff. Taten, Tat is the basically do something. And as I mentioned, you, you could call it to a certain degree a little bromance. Yeah. And this, of course, changed to a certain degree, especially after, after defeat in North Africa. And there actually, Rommel was about holding Italy. He was very pessimistic about this. And actually, I think his, pro, his assumptions were wrong and Castlering held out way longer than he assumed. So there was a, a certain rift there in, in the whole situation. Now. What I became aware only recently, in 2013, there was a, pa a paper by Peter Lieb, a German military historian, about the whole issue from Rommel being Nazi or being a, a resistance fighter. This is mainly the issue, the whole discussion, because as mentioned in the previous podcast, there was one staff member of Rommel who basically went forward and noted, okay, he was part of the resistance. Then this changed around in the 70s, and now we again have some new information there. So what came up, what is new? Basically, the interrogation protocols where Rommel is accused to a certain degree or uh, in implied. Then there was the wiretapping of German channels after the Second World War by the British or during the Second World War, which also notes on one channel that something was going on. And there were also notes from the chief of Nazi party chancery who, in, to a certain degree, seem to indicate that Rommel knew something. So Peter Lieb basically concluded that Rommel knew generally about the plans, but no details, and that he likely offered his support in case the coup d'etat or something would be successful. So this is the, the more sober aspect. And it was very interesting in, in this at the conference because one of the military historians, German military historians, noted that Rommel was in the resistance or was very aware of this and he made a very confident statement. But later on in the discussion, another German military historian noted out, well, it's not supported by other sources and you can interpret it very different. So the more balanced account is, okay, he knew something and he likely would have supported it, but it's not a definite statement. So again, Probably this is one of the reasons why one say, okay, he didn't do anything, while others say they're very convinced. In the end, it's, it's hard to tell. And another aspect is, of course, at one point he was in charge of protecting Hitler. Yeah. So going from a guy who admired him and they both admired each other and you were in charge of protecting him and then going to kill him 
is in a few years, even if they're major rift, is a quite a strong change. And also quite many German officers always argued, yeah, we, we don't kill our, um, the leader in charge. That's not what we do, which is also a, an important aspect that the German officers saw themselves, you could say to a certain degree as technicians. They didn't want to get involved into politics. This is always this is also a part if you look at certain generals like um, General Georg Thomas, who was in charge of the armament industry or armaments arm, and he was basically also sometimes attacked with, "Don't concern yourself with economics and politics because that is not the business of a German officer." So. The Wehrmacht, to, to a large part, was basically focused on, on the operational art of war, on tactics, on operations, on, on fighting the war, on combat, and not on the grand strategic level or the economic parts. So this is also something which is very important. They didn't see themselves uh, as political entities to a certain degree or not mingling with that. And this is the whole, the whole approach from how they were educated and how they saw themselves. So then going into politics is, is like not one step, that's like five steps. And we're talking about it. And also we also need to consider they were fighting a worldwide at this yeah. point. So doing a revolution or a coup d'etat is one thing, but at the same time, if you're fighting a world war, is even another aspect, which sometimes people seem to ignore. My final question today is the overwhelmingly popular opinion of Rommel today, I think, is that he is a brilliant field marshal and perhaps one of the greatest military leaders of all time, some would even argue. And, uh, you know, whether that's true or not, I don't know. But it seems, and we see this throughout history all the time, uh, there does tend to be this mystification of certain historical figures, you know, making them to be larger than life and even uh, greater than they really were. So I'm curious if you have, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on this, you know, and uh, Rommel is oftentimes referred to by his, his nickname, the Desert Fox, which is sort of a legendary title. So what's the difference between, you know, Rommel, the man, and Rommel, the Desert Fox, the, the living legend, uh, as it were? Yeah, I'm generally very careful with with brilliant or any hyperbolic um, notions, both in the positive and in the negative. Rommel was certainly a skilled officer and commander. The question is, to yeah. what level? So, yeah. and and another problem is you have you have quite many that you could say hyped him, and there also this usually attracts also people that talk very negatively about it. So you have you have usually, especially on the internet, but as we know now, this, this was always going on. So there's a lot of different factors that influence how, how he's perceived. For, for one instance, he was very close to Hitler and he didn't have a general staff officer education. So to a certain degree for this, you have quite a lot of envy from certain German officers who then talk more or less badly about it. Sometimes this is well-founded. In other cases, it's not. I mean, there's generally always quite some competition and among military commanders. What, what is rather certain that his tactical leadership was very well um, for the operational leadership, well, that's 
up to debate. I heard some people know would have been an excellent leader up to battalion level. And we know that he intermingled a lot on the tactical side of his subordinate units and that quite many of his subordinate officers complained about this. And he also broke the rules. And as Leap points out, he was very harsh towards his subordinate officers if they broke any rules. So this is usually some, something where one needs to be careful. And the other problem is that he had more, you could say, a myoptic look, so very limited viewpoint. He, he mainly looked at his field of operations or his situation and ignored the overall aspect. As said before, the Africa Corps was there as a blocking detachment more, mostly. And then he went on the offensive and required way more resources than was originally planned. And, and this amount of resources could not go somewhere else, for instance, on the Eastern Front, where it was also very much needed. And the same aspect is that he ignored the chain of command and he often directly went to Hitler or something, which just creates a lot of trouble in, in many aspects, for logistical reasons, for organizational re reasons, and all the other aspects. Then, also as pointed very well out in the, in the previous podcast, he was quite... Uh, concerned about his vanity and yeah some called him a glory hound he was very well well photogenic and and made the best of it so that you see him in a good light and everything to a certain amount as a uh, good pr which is in a way also quite important in some cases if you're a high level commander and then of course there is the mystification aspects you could say I mean, basically, it starts already after the First World War. So as mentioned, in the First World War, he got the Pule Marit as an infantry commander. The Pule Marit, the Blue Max, was, is usually mostly associated with, with people like Manfred von Richthofen, with fighter aces, which are also usually seen a bit above regular life, yeah, like as, as these stars or these heroes. So it starts there. Then he writes his book, Infantry Greifdan, Infantry Attacks. So he was already, to a certain degree, a star in Germany before Hitler was even there. So then you have the whole propaganda machine, and, and the propaganda minister Goebbels was very fond of, of Rommel once he was in charge of the Africa Corps and everything. So he was hyped in Germany. And another aspect is post-war. His son became a mayor of Stuttgart, which was one of very important city in post-war Germany or in, in Germany today. So you have also a, a certain lineage here. Then, of course, one very important aspect was that. I talked with, 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 a, with a military historian and officer, and after the Second World War, the Germans named three ships. And he noted to me that the criteria for, for, these, for the naming would have been that they were officers in the Second World War and they'd be dead. So they had the murders, which was a fighter pilot, the Lütens, which was from the Kriegsmarine, and Rommel. They had three ships named for each of the, of the armed forces, for Navy, Army, and Air Force. And one of the criteria was they had to be dead. Then you had uh, the connection with the 20th of July, which is still, as you can see, it's, it's quite complicated. And then his association with Hitler. So quite often hit, um, Rommel was portrayed as the guy who, who was a good German and who was respected by the enemy and his own man. And the problem is, if you look how close he was to Hitler, it's, it becomes a bit difficult to portray him in this way. At the same time, there are other people to go far out and say, okay, well, there was 
Einsatzkommandos planned for Africa, but they were never there. So, and another important aspect is he was the major foe for a long time of the British. And the British had a string of defeats. And then they finally defeated Rommel. And this is a very important aspect that sometimes the former enemy hypes up the other side to inflate his own accomplishments. And this was very interesting. At this conference, there was a discussion about this, about the Italians. And they said that about 10 years ago, the, the German military historians were at the conference for, for an important battle of the First World War where Italy and Austria fought against each other. And he said he never heard so much positive and so much laurels about the Austrian army ever before or afterwards. And he felt embarrassed for his Austrian colleagues because the Italians spoke so extremely positively about the Austrian army. I'm not, I'm not very well in the First World War and on the Austrian army, but from what I heard, usually it's not very positive in any way. And you have also with Rommel, you have, if you look, he didn't fought against Patton directly because in North Africa, they, they, I think he was not in charge anymore or Patton was not in charge at this point. But, but he's always in this movie, I think there's this quote, where Patton says, Rommel, I read your book or something. So yeah. you, have, you have Patton, a very important American general and figure from how large he's perceived. And you also have Eisenhower, who was later on president of the United States, who was in Normandy. Now, Rommel was not direct in, in charge in Normandy, but to a certain degree, because it's also quite complicated how the Germans set up the, the organization of the defense there. But usually, if you start reading any book on D-Day, Rommel is mentioned because he was in charge of the defenses at the beach. So the Rommel Spargel and all those different defenses. So you have him as an op opponent of one of the most important British generals, as an opponent of one of the most well-known American generals, and also of another Eisenhower, also a very important American general, and also president. And he never was on the Eastern Front. So the amount of connections or how he's placed is everything there that he's always to a certain degree present. You can't write about the, the Second World War without Rommel coming up. And the other aspect is, as mentioned in the previous podcast, the Cold War happened. The, the German army was needed again, or the German armed forces were needed again, and they needed reliable officers that were not too much in connection with the Nazi regime. And the Bundeswehr, and, and so you had... You had the situation, you needed a clean, clean general. And at the same time, which I think is also important, so he was also highly respected. This is without question. The question is, where does respect end and hype begins? Which I also found a very interesting point, which I never heard, but I wrote about, but maybe somebody else probably made this point before me. We should not forget that everyone, basically every officer and every general, who fought in the Second World War, fought previously in the First World War. And they were rather aware that the Treaty of Versailles and everything, the treatment that happened after the First World War, likely led to the Second World War. To a certain degree, maybe this very positive portrayal and everything was also motivated for, okay, we want finally peace. This could also be a good motivation because, okay, you see this, you see this especially, you see this with fighter pilots and everything else, that after the Second World War, they often are portrayed that they met each other, that they talked with each other and everything else. I don't know if this happened after the First World War as well, 
I never heard about this, but for the second world, especially for five days and everything else, there's always this going on. Okay, we respect each other and we talk with each other and the meeting of the former foes. And this, I think, was also to a certain degree motivated that, okay, we finally want peace in Europe, that you say, okay, you, you put this everything in a more positive light. And you have this figure you, who is dead also, and this is the important part, he's dead, so he, he can't make any errors anymore. This is one aspect about that is that he can't right. say anything stupid anymore in some cases, or he can't deny anything you claim about him or the other aspects. And of course, one general aspect is of human nature. We want to identify or we want usually one certain example for, for various reasons, because one example makes is easier to grasp for identification, for mystification, also for economic reasons. I mean, I think there are studies out there. Usually if you portray a, a tragedy and there's only one person involved, that the emotional reaction is stronger than you say, like it was one person and three others also had the same problem, that the emotional um, affection decreases actually. So our focus on one individual seems to be very strongly psychologically aligned. Yeah, that's, that's fascinating. And I think that's, those are all excellent points that you made. Well, Bernhard, thank you so much for coming on my podcast today. It's certainly been an honor to have you. I encourage everyone, and I know most of you listening are very familiar with his work already, but if you haven't, go check out Military History Visualize, the YouTube channel, and actually the podcast is called Military History Verbalized. So do go check that out. Bernhard, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me.